Welcome to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason Steffenhagen. I'm Steph Spencer. And I'm Lisa Adams. We are hosting conversations about scripture for the curious, doubters, and hope seekers. We're inviting people to ask different questions, questions asked by those who have been wounded and hurt, questions asked by those who have deconstructed and are looking for a reconstruction. We're creating space for love, kindness, justice, and curiosity. We will wrestle, we will question, we will dance, we will dream, we will wonder, we will be frustrated, and we will hope. We aren't searching for singular answers or solutions. We are searching the sacred. Hey everybody, welcome back to Searching the Sacred. We are launching into a new season where we will be looking at the book of Ruth. Normally, we like to bounce around passage to passage, character to character, New Testament, Hebrew scriptures all over the place. In this season, we are going to go through the book of Ruth, probably just the first couple of chapters because we're going to take it slow, as you could imagine. We're doing this intentionally. We really want to settle into a text. We really want to settle into a story and dive deep into it and mine it for all that it's got, start a conversation. We'll never get to the bottom of it. We'll never finish the conversation, but we truly hope that this study of Ruth will launch some good thinking and good conversations. And it's that idea of conversation that we're really interested in. We are going to be creating small group outlines, discussion guides, if you will, for people that want to take the conversation further. Because as we try to say, and hopefully say often, it's always better when you're a part of it. It's better when you're involved. It's better when your voice gets to be engaged in the scripture study. And so we invite you to donate to our Patreon page. And when you do that, you will get a download of the study guide for each of these episodes. So the plan is to do six episodes this season as we launch into the book of Ruth and have an accompanying discussion guide for all of those who have become patrons of this podcast. So if you are curious about becoming a patron, just go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, search Searching the Sacred, and you will be able to find us and then become a patron for just a dollar a month or more, whatever you feel like giving. We invite you to participate and become a part of the community in that way. And then we will make the discussion guide available each time an episode drops. So we are excited about this endeavor. We're grateful to have you on the journey. And to get us started, Lisa is going to read from the first five verses of the book of Ruth. This is the NRSV, but it's also from the People's Bible. So in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from the Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. When they had lived there about 10 years, both Mahlon and Kilian also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. 
How is this as an introduction to a book? How do we feel after five verses? Jason, you were shaking your head. That's a part of why I asked that question. Before I even asked the question, you were just shaking your head. Yeah, I mean, it's just so much. You know, it it, it sounds a lot like a really good one paragraph intro to a movie. Like all this stuff happens and then the story's going to begin. And there's just so much there to unpack, you know, from where they came from, what their names probably mean. Um, the fact that the mother is the central character of the story. I mean, we talk about them moving, but then the paragraph, the, the opening ends with, and then she was left without her two sons and her husband. So this is Naomi's story, you know, and, and, and I think that's just really cool framing for what we're about to enter into. Mm. Also, I'm really impressed with Lisa's pronunciation of all those names because they are definitely not easy. And she just like bossed it, you know, in that, such a cool way. So kudos just, to Lisa. You just commit. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> all you do is commit. People forget this actually about this is a good thing to note about the Bible that we know, but we don't know. It's written in another language. And most of the time that's translated, sometimes in the case of names, it's transliterated, which means it's like spelled in a way that makes sense to us, but it's not familiar to us. And so if you've ever learned a language, what you have to do is risk risk the vulnerability of trying. And that's why I'm terrible at getting better at Spanish because I feel stupid. I don't like that feeling of not knowing the word or not knowing how to pronounce the word. So I hold myself back from trying, which means I never get better at it. So when you're reading the Bible, like let yourself just try to pronounce a name and giggle and be like, whoops, I got that wrong. I'll keep trying because it doesn't help us get better or more comfortable with it when we avoid it because we feel vulnerable. So Lisa is a good model for just dive in with confidence when you're pronouncing names. It's also yep. helpful. It's also helpful to have a season of Hebrew in seminary. Like, not that I remember There's that. Much of also that. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to lie and be like, well, I just guessed and I knew it. <laughs> I mean, also fair. But I don't remember anything I learned really. I mean, alphabet, I'm so good. Uh, but there's a lot of things I wish I remembered. Anyway. I won't even tell you what my letter grade was when I took Hebrew in seminary. I had to beg the professor to allow me to pass oh, to no. get just to the next part of my degree. So that's how well I was uh, as, as a Hebrew student. Languages are not my favorite cup of tea. I, I like leaving that up to you all. <laughs> well, I was, you know what I was, <laughs> here's what I was thinking. I was thinking that in like five verses, there is like some of life's greatest pains and sorrows and tragedies. Mm. Like the worst things you can imagine happening to yourself have happened in five verses. And it made me wonder about um, some of the ways that like, when we look back on some of the hard stuff, like would we, would we tell it in five verses or do we tell it in a much longer story? Like what, and that that's actually not the heart of the story, <laughs> which also makes me like, oh, there is something about, I don't know if all that like births the story or if it's like how that story grows. It just made me curious, like five, five verses is not a lot of space for that kind of tragedy. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. And, and I think it's worth noting that tragedy and pain is in the Bible. Cause a lot of us have had experiences where the Bible's like thumped at us and like, Oh, just be okay with pain. Like God works all things for the good. Um, like there's, there's actually space in the narratives where it's acknowledging the pain. And then it's also telling the story coming from the pain. But part of the problem was we just don't slow down enough to see it. And so like right now, we're just reading these five verses, which means we're going to be able to sit with the pain a little bit, which is going to honor the story of this family that had a lot of pain. And can we do that when we read? Can we pause before resolution or the next part and just sit with the pain of the people in the story and be like, oh, this really, this is a lot. This is a lot this family has gone through. Yeah, I love that you guys are pointing that out. You know, when I, and this isn't the the book we're here to talk about, but I, I I think one of the things I've always appreciated reflecting on is in the story of Job, that being such a painful story, and the the pain of that and the discussion of that is so many chapters, and and that story is one of the like the most ancient stories that was ever codified and written down, and people knew. And, you know, one of the simplest ways and maybe one of the best ways that I've heard about why that story is meaningful is that it just normalizes the human experience of loss. And, and like that being human means we do grieve and we have pain in our life. And I think that's what these first five verses are doing is that they're, I mean, who can't connect with this? You know, maybe someone that hasn't lost, obviously, but most of us have some semblance of understanding of loss, maybe not to this degree, maybe not to this level. I don't want to pretend like I've lost my kids or my husband, you know, my spouse, you know, my partner, but because um, I haven't, but people experience loss, tragedy, hardship on life altering levels. And that's what it means to be human at some level. Let's go through those losses. just like step by step or just even the whole circumstance and really take our time to set the stage of what's going on in Ruth. So the first part of verse one is setting us in a time frame that this is happening when the judges ruled. So some of our listeners are going to be familiar with what it was like in the book of judges and some aren't. So what do we know about what life was like in the book of judges in the time period of the judges? I know how the book ends. <laughs> how does the book end, Lisa? Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes or something like that. Hmm. Um, yes. And in our Christian Bible, so in the Hebrew Bible, the, the book of Ruth is in the writings, but our Christian Bible actually helps us out in this because Ruth comes right after Judges. And so we can see that the book of Judges ends with this sentence, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes which gives us a context for Ruth coming next. And Jason, you used the word chaotic. What do you say more about chaotic? Yeah, I mean, the book of Judges is very um, tribal, right? They're, they're not a staff. Like they, they've gone into the promised land. Joshua led them into the promised land. The tribes spread out throughout the promised land and they've all got their own area, but there's not a centralized kingdom. There's not a centralized temple. There's not a centralized leadership. And instead, everybody's kind of fending for themselves. Some of them at times will fall in and start worshiping um, gods of other people. And then there will be some form of calamity attack, some form of, you know, in a way, quote unquote, judgment. 
And then they'll cry out for someone to save them. God raises up this judge. The judge will fight off the enemy. Typically, we see this with, you know, Deborah. We see this with Samson. We see with Gideon. We see this with all these different judges throughout this book. And then once they kind of fight off the enemy, they reestablish rest in the land. Then things kind of go back to normal for a certain period of time. Typically, it's about 40 years in some instances. So you get like a generation of peace or rest. And then people kind of fall back into an old pattern of, of you know worshiping a god that's not yahweh and 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 so then they have that happen all over again and so it's kind of is a cycle that keeps happening and then you mix in famine um and you mix in people making their own choices and saying well if no one's going to keep me here then i'm going to go do what i want to do and so i think we find ourselves in a very chaotic um but also like i mean these are people that are likely you know, only a few generations removed from slavery in the wilderness. And so there's still like a lot of remnant of those experiences in the mix. And so they're probably trying to figure out like, who are we on this planet still, you know, in this land? Um, You know, we don't look like the kingdoms around us, but we also aren't just slaves, you know, anymore or haven't been. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's chaos. And I, I think I hear in what you're saying, not just chaos, but like cycles yes, of like following and not and following and not. And part of that sort of cycle feels so human to me of like, how do we get lulled? Like things are going really well. And so now we're just lulled into something and then something because of that lull, something happens and there's this cycle of that. And on top of the cycle of that, there's this tribal leadership model where that cycle is happening as a whole for the nation, but also inside of individual tribes, because this isn't a king and a monarchy. This is like every once in a while, there's a judge that's sort of ruling the whole, but a lot of the decisions are being made tribe by tribe. And then as the book ends, a lot of the decisions are being made individual by individual. Mm -hmm. And, um, the book of judges is somewhere around the whole time period of judges is somewhere around 300 years. And this again frames us. We are, if if the book of Ruth is happening at the end of that, then we are hundreds of years past slavery. Yeah. If it's happening in the middle of that, we're maybe a hundred years past slavery, but we've got, you know, we got the 40 years in the wilderness plus the 300 years of the book of Judges. It's been a long time since they've been in Egypt. And it's several generations trying to figure out how to establish themselves as a people group. And sometimes it goes great. And sometimes it doesn't go great. And so if that's you, if you're living inside the promised land and you're experiencing those cycles or that chaos, like how does that affect how you view God, how you view personal responsibility, how you view your neighbor? Like what are some potentials for what it would like to be living in that time period? I mean, I think there's lots of, I mean, there's lots of different ways to live in the time period. Um, for people who want to accumulate lots of land, there's probably opportunity to accumulate lots of land. For people who want to kind of go off grid, there's probably some space to go off grid and do your own thing and not worry this and have nobody bug you. There's probably, I don't know. Sometimes you probably make really great decisions and sometimes you make really crappy decisions. There's just a lot 
left on the table to like figure out hmm, when you don't have like when you're just doing what's right in your own ways that means you don't have like a lot of rules that you're trying to follow with everybody else hmm. I think there might also be a level of generational tension because if you're going from a generation that abandons the Lord and follows the ways of some other, you know, God or something or people group, and then you get attacked and you're getting overrun and a judge has to come and save you and raise up an army and fight off the enemy and then get the land back, get a rest. You're either the generation that got, you know, deceived or, you know, started kind of drifting away from the living presence, or you're the generation that came after that, that looks at that generation and goes, what was wrong with you? And why did you do that? Because it caused us to have to go to war. We lost loved ones. We, you know, went through all this pain and now we're having to kind of reestablish ourselves. And so like, I would, I would imagine there's just generational trauma and there's generational angst towards one another which I don't know, is pretty relatable to 2022, uh, you know, pretty relatable with where we are at and how there's generational tension at times about the way we've operated in the world, the way we see the world, the worldview we have, the way that we, you know, see what it means to be neighborly, um, you know, nationalistic, you know, I mean, man, my goodness, we could get into that all day long um, from a generational standpoint. So I just think there's some interesting generational tension that we could be seeing. Well, there's also like a question about, I, well, I think I would ask a lot of questions about like, who is God? Like in some ways, like <laughs> there is like a selfish interpretation of who God is and what God does. So like, if it benefits me, then obviously that's God. Like that's a good God um, doing what God said God would do. And then when like famine or war or pain or things strike the question of like, well, is that God? Is that my fault? Is that your fault? Is that just God? Is there a different God? Like I, like that would just be kind of swirly and confusing. Mm. Especially because what they have moved from for now hundreds of years is this wilderness experience where they had a tabernacle in the wilderness central to all of the, all of the tribes were gathered around the same tabernacle. And over that tabernacle, you saw this cloud of the living presence. It felt real clear. Like we are all behind the same thing. And this is God right there. And when that cloud moves, we move, like we're, we know who we're following. We know that God is providing us manna. There's like a thing everybody's centered around. When you move into the promised land, there's still a tabernacle, but now that tabernacle rests in a place that may or may not be where your tribe has land. And the thing that you're centralized on is now the oral tradition of the Torah, where you're telling the story and how your tribe tells the story might be a little different than how another tribe tells the story. And the thing that unifies you is going to that tabernacle for the festivals three times a year. So like three times a year, you're gathering with those other tribes. You're seeing that other, that's a part of your same people group, but that is a very different thing to unify around than, than the wilderness experience. And so how each of us individually, how each tribe is going to view God might be really different because we might be having different experiences of God's provision. If we're living in Asher along the Mediterranean sea. Or if we are in the tribe of Simeon living in the South in the desert, what do I think God is like according to where my tribe lives and my three times a year gathering with the other tribes who are having a very different experience of God's provision? Yeah. 
you know, and, and I also think that as, as helpful as it may be to recognize that in like the Christian scriptures, this is like in the historical section. And so we can frame that next to like the book of Judges and that experience. I think it is helpful to recognize that the Hebrew Bible puts this in the writings alongside the prophets. And so there's a prophetic nature to these books. And so sometimes it can get really easy to read them as history. And this is the way God was, as opposed to maybe the writing of this was trying to tell people something else. Like maybe it was trying to warn people about the way that we can utilize our understanding of God, or maybe we can, maybe we glorify the wrong thing um, because it leads to a cycle of violence and it leads to a cycle of more death as opposed to like actual peace, you know, cause like this cycle that we see in judges is the people moving to rest, but it doesn't stop with rest. It tends to go back into another cycle of violence. And I feel like by putting that in the writings, the writers are trying to say like, this wasn't a healthy pattern, even though they got to rest over and over, they didn't stay there. They didn't figure out a better system. They still fell back into really awful patterns they still fell back into more and more violence. And, and that's really, really dan- damaging to what it means to be human and how we arrange ourselves and treat our neighbor. And so I, I like reading the book of Judges as a, an, as a warning, as opposed to uh, this is just how it was. And this is how God was, because I don't know if this is really how God was. Well, and I want to maybe clarify from what you said, because I think it what you're saying is right on and it's really helpful, but it actually splits these to in an important way. So the Navim is the is the prophets in the Hebrew scriptures, and that does not include Ruth, but Navim does include judges. So it puts mm-hmm. all of our historical books alongside mm-hmm. of the prophets in one section. And yeah. then it has the Ketavim, which are the writings. And, and that's where Ruth is. It's also where Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes. So where that puts it for us is in what we would consider wisdom literature. Yeah. Which then it's saying to us, perhaps like if you read the book of Ruth as timeless wisdom, like what can we hear from it? Just the way, like how can we read the wisdom of what's happening in it differently than we would read the narratives of King David? Yeah. Um, and there might be as a challenge to kind of read it along that side of wisdom literature. Well, that kind of like makes me think about um, like really placing Ruth in the time of Judges, like that first one, like puts Ruth in the time of Judges, but then it makes it seem um, like, a, well, I don't know, maybe there, maybe there's people, I don't, maybe, maybe this is the only story, but it makes me want, like, maybe there's people that just. I don't know. How does goodness continue to like come? Like, like we know that to be true. Like when I think about, um, I don't know, like the really inspirational stories that come out of like people escaping slavery, like the people who risked everything to do it. And then would like go back and help more people like the Harriet Tubman's, like the people who like did stuff like, there's a way that they could be almost like forgotten or wiped over, but like, they're actually showing us that in a time where that's not, it's not necessarily like common. <laughs> it is happening. Okay, so to say like the time period is given here, perhaps not to make it 
not to have us hold this as a historical narrative for history's sake, but that the time period is given to help us see the way that goodness is still continuing. Great way to phrase that, Lisa, of like, how can we look and like gain wisdom from these stories of good in different time periods, which places it in interesting ways, like the book of Esther is also in the writings. How is goodness coming forward in, in that time period? How is goodness coming forward in the time of Ruth? How is goodness somehow coming forward back to Jason that he brought up earlier in a, in a book like Job? Um, it's a very interesting way to read those wisdom literatures and look for those threads, those stories that are going across time periods that we can learn from. And I actually really like that we can do both things at the same time. So like in the in the time of the judges, we can have the 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 historical slash prophetic work of the book of judges that is trying to tell us something about like a warning, right? It's like a warning, like this is not a healthy way to live. There's a better way of doing things. That's essentially what the book of judges could be read to do for us. At the same exact time, we have the writing of Ruth, which is doing something very different than the prophetic work of the writing of judges. And so, I, I mean, I think of like music or poetry written in our time. Some of those poems and songs can be very prophetic. And some of them can be like using our time to express eternal truths, right? Like I think of the right, the poems of Mary Oliver are like timeless and just wonderful and magical. And they just ground us you know, they use our setting and our in the nature that she sees in that moment to express timeless ideas. And then you like listen to the music of, say, Bob Dylan, who's writing about some very specific time, and he's warning people about the way we're treating one another. And both exist simultaneously, but they're doing something very different about the world in which we inhabit at the same moment. <laughs> and so I think that could be what's happening with Judges and Ruth is the same moment is giving us two different ways of navigating um, you know, our ideas and our thoughts about the divine and, and the human. And right on the heels of that context, let's look at the first thing the author wants us to see in the time period of judges, there is a famine in the land. So that's the second part of the context. Why might giving us that time period be helpful alongside of telling us that there's a famine? How is that different than a famine during the Babylonian exile? or a famine during their time in the wilderness, or a famine during King David's rule? Well, there's not a centralized government in the time of the judges. So you get the sense that people would be a little bit more on their own and would would need to like solve their famine problem um, by not going to like the capital and being like, okay, you've been storing up food for us. So like now's the time we need it. Or um Hey, can you just take the army and go, you know, destroy those people so we can take all their crops because we're running low over here? There's there's no form of like political maneuvering in order to meet the need. And so it's a little bit kind of every family for themselves. Well, it's also it reminds me a little bit of like how um I don't know if it's I don't think it's the same, but in some ways it's that question for me of like, well, what does it mean that there is a famine? Like, what does that mean for all the communities of people? And in some ways I think about like, well, they're supposed to be in this land. Like they're supposed to be in the land, right? Like, and so like thinking about land being center and a very specific, a part of like their story means the thing that you're promised is now not the thing you thought you're getting. That's <laughs> so, good, Lisa. 
you know, like, right. Like in some way you'd be like, what the hell? That's not the thing. Like this should not be happening or you don't want it to happen. It's like, it's a little bit like it has murmurs of climate change for me. (laughs) Of like, like, could you pretend like it's fine? It's just fine. It's just a quick little drought. Like, or like at what point (laughs) do you feel like, oh, we really have to do something. And by the time you feel that way, is it like, like it's too late. I mean, and I, and I I love that point. I love that point you're making about like the land is kind of rejecting them when the land was what was promised. Like this land that was supposed to be flowing with milk and honey, no more milk and honey. (laughs) Like we're running low here. Um, And what kind of doubt does that do? If I'm a person then, if I, like we are there, we are living in the land of milk and honey and there's a famine. What are possible ways to interpret that famine? In God's that context. Judgment. Okay. So this is what, this is a place to sort of pause. This is a way we have to be careful when we read the Bible. Okay. So in the context of the book of judges or first Samuel, anything taking place in the promised land, the framework is that it is, it is a theocracy, meaning this is God's people living in God's land, according to God's law and the government and the religious institution are one unit. Therefore, famine isn't always random. Like fast forward, and many of us are familiar, I think, with, or because we did this, we did a study on Elijah before. First Kings 18, like Elijah the prophet is confronting Ahab, and there's a famine for three years as a consequence for Ahab being a king that's not following God. That is a different context than the United States. We are not a theocracy. Although there is some bad theology that might suggest otherwise. Yes. Like not to pretend that people haven't done some horrific things saying that that is God's way of punishing people. Right. Which is why we have to be really gentle when we talk about this, but to say in the scriptural framework of wisdom literature, when there is something happening in the promised land it is often tied to God in a way that may or may not be true with suffering in general, with our modern system of government in a different land, in a different context. In that context, it's one of the, the land is one of the ways that God communicates with God's people and gets their attention. So if that could be the context for this famine, why might there be a famine? I'm going to add one more piece to how that could be a part of the story that's being told is because the next thing that's given is a location. Where is this certain man from? In verse one. Bethlehem. Well, I, I don't know Bethlehem in Judah or Bethlehem Judah. Bethlehem Judah. So Bethlehem in Hebrew is Bet Lechem. Bet is house. Lechem is bread. So there's a famine in the land in the house of bread. So the author is playing with language and puns even to say there's a famine in the house of bread. What might that mean? How might we interpret that? What might we do in response to there being a famine in the house of bread? Yeah. Desperation comes to mind. Like that's, that, that feels pretty severe. Mm -hmm. 
So whatever they whatever they may have done, because if, if we're saying that this is a result of maybe God trying to get people's attention, then the question becomes, well, what did they do to need that? So, which we don't have really an indication of what they may have done, or if that's even what's being communicated. Um, but there's a famine in the house of bread. People are probably pretty desperate to figure out what to do. What do we do with, if we assume that's what the author is communicating, what do we do with the idea that God might send a famine? In this particular context, again, not saying that God sends famines now in the same way we're going to be, we're going to just be in this context right now. Well, obviously means God's not pleased. Like, or I mean, maybe there's a test. Maybe it's a challenge, but I just don't know that that's what I see in the text when I think about, if I think about it being, usually famine indicates something's up. Somebody's being punished for something, usually big leadership, something's gone awry. So if the community, like the community, I would imagine the community is wondering like, okay, who's, what's what? There's probably finger pointing. I don't know that anybody's saying, look what I did. <laughs> it is probably a lot of like, look what you guys are doing. You get, like, I don't know. Like I can't, it actually feels like for as much as it should make things simpler of like, it's things are not right. It actually in human experiences, like it actually gets more complicated because it's, I don't know, it doesn't make it clear. It actually like feels like it almost muddies the stuff. It makes it more painful. Because who do I, is God trustworthy? What if this is like, is, is God being pejorative? <laughs> is God like, like what if, if this is a consequence? Like, how do I hold that if I'm actually living during that time period? What if it's the judge's fault? It's not my fault, but I'm still living here. Then that feels unfair. And is God really good? <laughs> kind of reminds, like when you're a parent and you're trying to figure out what's the right punishment for your kids. Like in some ways, I'm not, I don't know if it's a punishment or not in my head. It always is in my head. This is what this is. This is a punishment for bad behavior and trying to get you to course correct, like try to fix it, which I feel like when I'm thinking about my kids and if I have to make a decision about like, what kind of punishment do you need for the thing you've done? It isn't just because I want to punish you. It's because I actually want you to do something different. Like I want you to like make a different decision in the future. And so I'm actually curious, like what famine does to us that would make us choose a different thing. Like, is it really about like survival or is there something else that happens during a time of famine that would help us choose differently? Okay. And, and we don't really get an indication of where the famine's coming from. We just know that there's a famine in the land. Now famines could exist because there's not enough rain. There's not enough crops. There's not enough food, right? Period end of story. And that, that feels like a natural disaster, right? Or a natural thing. We don't know if someone's hoarding all the stuff, you know, we don't know if the tribe of Asher over on the sea that has all the fish and the water and all the ability to grow more crops and they're, maybe they're not dispersing it to the rest of the Israelite community. Maybe they're charging too much. Maybe the, the bartering system that they have, the economy of the day the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting famined, you know, and, you know, and so we don't know if there's an economic injustice here or if it's just a natural occurrence. And my mind 
you know, I, we read all this stuff about God, 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 doing, 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 doing. And, and I think that that is freaky. Um, not my favorite version of, of how we talk about God being the one that causes famine and destruction and hardship. And so if I put the pause button on that and say, okay, let me fast forward to my context right now. When we look at like the housing crash of 2008, there was, I would not say that was God that caused the housing crash or the economy to fall apart, but you can look at certain levels of leadership who made decisions, who made choices, and it had grave impact on many, many thousands of families that ended up losing their home, went bankrupt, and the people that made those decisions got bailed out by the government or they made money off of this reverse, you know, whatever. Uh, and they were able to make money off of shorting all the stocks that they had, you know, jacked up in the first place. And so the rich got richer, the poor got poorer, and it feels like a very unjust situation. And it sounds a little bit about like what's going on in the book of Ruth, that there's some power, there's some influence that is not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Now there's a famine that's affecting everyone. Now, what's God's role in that? Maybe God does cause the famine in order to course correct and help humanity out. Maybe it's economic famine and people aren't sharing the resources that the earth is capable of producing and they're not prepared for a famine. Um, and yet it's just easier to blame it on God because it feels like that's what God is doing to judge the people. I don't know. Um, but but I, I think we experience these things today. And there's, again, placing this in wisdom literature, it doesn't blame God, but it, but it pushes us to wrestle with this and ask the question because we know there's a famine in the land and that that land that's being talked about is specifically the promised land and specifically the house of bread inside the promised land. So the author is pushing us to wrestle with why would that be the case? What are the possible causes? So we could blame God. We could be like, God is just being vindictive and mean. We could say, oh, maybe God is trying to course correct. We could say something more like maybe God is withdrawing God's hand and allowing natural consequences to come forth. That's sometimes the way that it's framed in scripture is more like God. Sometimes God is intervening to push and to help. And sometimes when there's consequences, there's more the language of God stops yes. helping and lets things take a natural course. It could be that. And it's more like letting those consequences of oppression come up and see what people do. Can we also say that this is not the first famine ever recorded in human history? And so there have been other famines that have had devastating tolls upon humanity. And so if we're going to learn from our history at all, it's that maybe we should prepare better for this so that the poorest of the poor don't get devastated by the next famine. Um, and so you know, but Jason, we don't do a good job with it when it's not a famine. Exactly my point. Thank you. Yes, you're <laughs> no. right. We don't do a good right. job with that. Maybe that's the wisdom. We don't, is, Hello? We don't live that way. No, we don't. Right. But that's the point. Like we should. And one of the things, there's a couple ways to frame what this famine is. Besides, like when we think famine, we're going to tend to think these global huge like i think about that um whatever that song was um that you two helped participate in when ethiopia had a big famine right like we think of like you know i don't remember the like song. Heal like the world money. make it a better place or yeah, something. <laughs> yeah right like we think of those kinds of famines this is a famine in bethlehem bethlehem is a small town and not only is the famine in a small town 
um, when in the end, when we go, go fast forward into the end of this chapter, when Naomi returns after these years away, there's a bunch of people there. So however severe the famine was or wasn't, it doesn't appear that everybody left or the town was completely decimated because well, it, when even she ret- with, it, even, it even ends with, they came to Bethlehem at the uh, beginning of the barley harvest. So like apparently stuff's grown again by the yes, end of the, and, the and that's, you know, 15 years later or so. Right. And so I just want to also have us shrink the famine. Like this is real suffering for real people, but it's, but if, if it's just a famine in Israel, let's, let's just say, so it's, if it, the famine is in the land, we assume land is Israel. Does that mean if you cross a border to a neighboring land, is there famine <laughs> or is it like, are they flourishing? <laughs> like, right. Like, is it just really obvious that there's something happening? More localized. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And if it is, and, and it's, and it doesn't specify how wide the famine is in that land. It specifies that this particular family is from Bethlehem. So it could just be in Bethlehem. And so what if they just went up to Asher back to the Mediterranean and there's not actually a famine there. It might just be a regional famine. Um, it doesn't really specify that it's like the whole of the land has no food. It's there's a famine. They're struggling. (laughs) Man, we sure have exhausted verse one, (laughs) but I also am like, it feels a little bit like Texas and their electric, like the grid, (laughs) right? (laughs) Like there's something happening. Like if you live in Texas, there's something going on with electricity, but the rest of the country is like, we're good. So the, so the, the challenge in verse one is, is that becomes like the spiritual question of this book, but other books is what do we do when there's famine? What do we do when resources are scarce? And that's a question that's come up several times already. So back in, in, in Genesis 12, Abraham went, Abraham went forth from his native land. And once he went forth, he experienced famine. When he experienced that famine, he went to Egypt. When there's a famine in Egypt, Joseph does the thing with the storehouses because of the, the dreams that he had. But there's this question of like, what happens when there's famine and what do people do? And in this context, when we think about this family from Bethlehem choosing to go to Moab during a famine. What seems to be different in this story than like when you mentioned like Moses or Abraham is it feels like Moses and Abraham were explicitly told some of the business, like they got direct words, they got dreams, they had some things to kind of go on. This particular story, it doesn't seem like God is saying, go do this. They're just, we're going to go do this. Like, I don't know. Like, (laughs) It's a bit of an exploration of that last verse of the book of Judges. What is right in everyone's eyes? And because their actions are showing what's right in their eyes, because we don't see in this book God saying, do this, don't do this to anybody. We get to see how are they defining what right and just living looks like? How are they creating their pathways? And this particular family, um, this certain man becomes a sojourner or a stranger in Moab. And that language is should connect us back to the fact that Abram became a sojourner when he left, but when they're given the promised land, one of the things they're told is they will no longer be sojourners. They now have a land that is theirs. 
And this particular man in response to the famine becomes a sojourner, Gur, a stranger in the land of Moab, which is a land that is actually a pretty deep enemy or other to the land that he's coming from, because on their way into the promised land, when they were trying to cross over at the end of the book of numbers, Moab denied them passage and God or the people or both, or however we want to read how they tell the story, got real mad about that. And basically said, like, there will be a block between us and the Moabites for 12 generations. Like, but like, we need to distance ourselves from these people who wouldn't give us passage. And they're very much well, an other. It also mentioned, I mean, in particular, that verse says that they would not, they did not come to meet you with bread and water. Mm-hmm. And so, so like, versus that, what's the reference? Oh, it is in Deuteronomy 23. Can you read it? three to seven, no Emmite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of uh, Yahweh, not even the 10th generation, for they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, some of the ore, and it goes on. Oh, but, the Balaam passage. Yeah, yes. so that's right. We can remember the Balaam was hired by the Moabites and the Ammonites to speak against Israel. Like this is, this isn't just him saying, this isn't just Elimelech, we find out his name in the next verse, saying, like, where will I find food? Like, to choose to become a sojourner in Moab is making a choice that is more than we read on the surface when we're not doing a very slow read like we're doing today. <laughs> so, what actually, I, it, you know, great. It, it, and it ends with, do not seek their welfare or benefit as long as you live. <laughs> yeah, he's going against the conventional wisdom. That's some deep... There's a deep wound. Mm-hmm. There is a deep mm-hmm. enemy other like this is not a this is not a people group that has been supportive of your people or your god. And in a time of famine, you're like, you know what? That's where I need to go. What might that be communicating? I mean, it could either show a huge disloyalty to your own leadership if you want to place this as like a political thing but we also know that the political is tied up in the religious and the in the in the theological and so it could say i don't trust that god is going to provide for me i'm going to go to the people that god said don't associate with because they don't help us so that could be both a political and spiritual abandoning mm. and maybe that is framed by um let's make let's go to verse two and add their names to the equation when we think about we going. We did it. We made it to verse two, everybody. <laughs> this is a moment. No, this is going to be like 36 seasons in the book of Ruth. Um, <laughs> but so his name was Elimelech. Elimelech is El combined with Melech. So that's God is my king. God is king is Elimelech's name. Naomi is his wife's name. So that is from Noam, which is kindness, pleasantness, beauty, favor, delight, sweetness. So God is my king is married to sweetness and delight. At the end of verse one, who it's not just them that go to Moab, it's who? And their kids. Before we get, before we get to the kids, I just want to say it feels like a 1950s show right now. God is my King and sweetness and kindness are together. I mean, it just, 
how cute, right? Yes, right. And so they, you know, and they're living in the house of bread. So at some point, this is this is the 1950s shiny something. Two boys. Yeah, and they're given two boys, right? So you're like, oh my gosh, God is my king, married to pleasant listening to delight, living in house of bread, have giving birth in the promised land, giving birth to two kids. Like what? And obviously, and when we see at the end of the book, he he was a landowner because they're working to get his land back. So they probably have some means. Everything's great. It's Wally and the Beaver are their kids' names, right? <laughs> oh, that should be their kids' names, we would think. And so, uh, but what Mahlon comes from. You weren't as confident as Lisa. Try that again. No, no, I wasn't. Well, because well, because in, in, in my English, it had a H, but then it's actually a H. So it's Mahlon um, is, means sickness. It comes from Hala, meaning to become weak or sick, diseased, grieved, sorry, sore. That's so ultimately, this is like this is like evidence that somebody else wrote this story as opposed to like Naomi actually named her kid this because unless I mean, Jason, kid what if what if though? Okay, I'm just I'll play the play the advocate here. Yeah, yeah, go what for if, it. What what if like her childbirth was really hard, hmm. right? And what if she actually was really sick afterwards and in a lot of pain? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I mean, sometimes we look at it as like a reflective of the child and their entire disposition, but maybe it's actually just a reflection of the reality of what was happening. And like, it's just maybe, naming what it is. Man, you, that, that's, that's like a lot of pain to just name your kid. The one who caused me pain. <laughs> <laughs> but like, what if that's just, maybe she's just really, maybe Naomi's just really honest. Like that is what this, this is right now. It's yeah. maybe he's not prophetically speaking over his life. That's what his life will be. Although it turns out it is. Well, <laughs> it, well, it, well, and it turned, I mean, what Lisa, what you just reminded me of is the naming of Benjamin. So Rachel, when she gives birth to Benjamin, she dies in childbirth and she names him Benoni, which is son of my sorrow. His dad is like, no, we're going to call him Benjamin, son of my right hand. <laughs> but his first name that he's given as she's dying is son of my sorrow. And so there is maybe some trajectory given that you might've given that kind of name to your kid. And maybe that Naomi names him. I mean, in some ways, like maybe that is speaks to her strength, even in their marriage early on. Um, And then we have Killian. Kilian is uh, destruction, failing, pining, or death. It's from Kala to cease, to end, to finish. So we have two kids, sickness and death, essentially. <laughs> what has happened to Lee? He was just pining to be done with childbirth at this point. That's why that he got that name. <laughs> I'm just going to write out my, my theory. <laughs> yeah, okay, so what might this... I'm sticking with my theory that there were some editors here. That that's my theory. Well, either way, we've got wisdom literature, so we leave room for both. There's, but there's something to just pausing and seeing their names. So there, you know, here we had this couple. God is my king and pleasantness, living in the house of bread inside the promised land. But then they give birth to sickness and death, and there's a famine, and they become 
sojourners in Moab? Like what, what happened? Well, I think the writers of the story, regardless of where, where the origin of the names come from, they are painting us a really, really vivid picture that we're in the promised land and now we're in Moab. We were, you know, in the, the land of bread and, or the house of bread. And now we're not, we had it all. And now we don't like it's, it's just moving in an unhealthy direction really quick. Well, and what happens, I mean, part of these names even sets up like two sons would show the blessing of God, but then naming them this feels like the blessing's not what I thought it would be. The promised land's supposed to be milk and honey, but it's a famine. Like, how are we being set up with these contrasts of like what blessing, what we think it's going to be and what it actually is and how we deal with disappointment and unmet expectations and sorrow and sadness and loss when we thought it was just going to be up and up and to the right on that graph of what life looked like. Well, don't we always think life is going to be up and to the right? Yes. Like that's, I mean, as parents, like when we go up, we're all parents. So like in some ways it's like when we you have kids, we assume it's that. And then when things turn out different or like there's a sudden, Oh, like I didn't like, it's minor now it's in, it's in the rear view mirror, but like when Nick was born, he had a cleft flip and like had to have surgery at 12 weeks. That wasn't, that was a, that was a hard left from what I thought was going to be happening. Mm-hmm. Like, there, it, and that's minor in, in the comparison to a lot of things. Like I just, man, don't we always want it to go to the right mm-hmm. and up. Hmm. But like, maybe it's a slow burn too. Like maybe this is just a really, it, I mean, it's not like one day they woke up and everything was horrible. If the, if the kids are born with these names and obviously they're, they're at a particular age when they move into Moab and then have wives, like there were, there's probably some years where this hasn't felt well, maybe not in famine the whole time, but it hasn't felt well. Mm -mm. yeah i mean i think it gets back to that where we started the very very beginning when we first read these five verses and we said what's our first thought that comes to mind and we just said like this is a really harsh reality of kind of what it means to be human and i think we're we've we've did a really deep dive for the, the past while to get into all the nuances of it and i think what we're coming away with is that yeah it's just a really rough reality of there's pain in life and we're only at verse two with their names but it's telling us a story of pain and and that's sometimes where we find ourselves this concludes our first episode in our study of the book of ruth as you saw we are taking it slow, going little by little, verse by verse. And as I mentioned at the beginning, we are creating a discussion guide. So if you have not yet become a patron of this podcast, go to patreon.com, search Searching the Sacred, and you can become a patron for $1 a month or more if you would like. 
And when you do so, you will get sent to you the discussion guide that accompanies this episode. Thanks again for joining us on Searching Sacred. We'll see you next week.